Hello, and welcome to The Intersection. I'm Mark Riley. Thank you so much for joining us on this, the first episode of our sixth series of this podcast. We look at a number of stories, including top U.S. brass in Ukraine, lying without consequence for the GOP, DeSantis versus Disney, China makes a deal that makes countries in the Pacific very nervous, and the end of the mask mandate. Or is it? First, Ukraine. U.S. Secretaries of State and Defense, that would be Anthony Blinken and Lloyd Austin, are both meeting with President Zelensky in Kiev. That's right, Kiev. Word is they'll reassure him that money and weapons will continue to come from the U.S. Early word is Secretary of Defense Lloyd Austin has told Ukraine one of its objectives, that is America's objectives, is to undermine Russia's ability to replenish their forces and therefore continue the war. President Zelensky has been striking an optimistic note of late, saying these new weapons mean his army could in fact defeat Vladimir Putin's invading forces. However, it may be too late to save the port city of Mariupol, where reports say a mass grave has been uncovered. The Russians are making limited gains in the eastern region of Donbass as well. As I've said in previous episodes, the valiant struggle of Ukraine has to be balanced against the short attention spans of the West. There are already reports that Poland is experiencing fatigue with the war and pushback against accepting more refugees, and they have accepted by far the largest number coming out of Ukraine. Despite the outrages that come with invasions, history, even recent history, holds out a little bit of hope. America's stumbling withdrawal from Afghanistan as well as the Russian war with that country should tell us that the underdog can at times in fact win, even if they are the Taliban. Right now, there are a couple of conclusions that can be reached and questions that ought to be asked. One of the conclusions is this. Ukraine has held out a lot longer than even its most optimistic Western allies had hoped. They've persevered despite NATO's decision not to send troops to defend its borders. It has, however, gotten this far at a terrible cost in human life, both military and civilian. Can Ukraine fight on in spite of this? Can they win? Certainly one would not have given them much of a chance at the outset, but what happens if this war lasts through the summer, the fall, the winter, and into 2023? Wars of attrition are ugly, bloody conflicts, and this one has the potential to be just that, even beyond what we've seen thus far. There seem to be two options. One, the Russians declare victory at some point and go home. And the other is that Ukraine negotiates with Putin and likely has to, for some foreseeable future, give up territory for peace. That would be the Donbass region. Neither of these options are palatable or maybe even likely, but as the war continues, the fatigue factor will set in throughout NATO. At least that's my prediction. Now you ask, you may ask yourself that is, what does an end to mask mandates have to do with Ukraine? For most people, maybe nothing. But to me, its common point is in fact fatigue and the fervent desire to get back to normal whether that be the, uh, the Ukraine or mask mandates on public transportation. 
There were cheers this past week when U.S. District Judge Catherine Kimball Mizell of Florida concluded the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention exceeded its authority when it mandated masks on public transportation. That cheering was a direct result of people tiring of being told what to do. Never mind those masks in enclosed spaces like public transit do actually help to spread the transmission of coronavirus. Never mind that case numbers are going up all over the country. Ask the people who cheered the judge's decision, and they'll tell you it's about personal freedom, that masks don't in fact work, etc., etc., etc. Opponents, on the other hand, point to the fact that Mizell is a Trump appointee who was found not qualified for the federal bench and that the CDC needs to have the tools to save lives should any pandemic in the future run out of control. When it comes to the judge's qualifications, this is what you get when you have the likes of the former president choosing who gets to sit on the federal bench. Mizell ruled the CDC exceeded its authority. President Joe Biden's Justice Department says it will appeal that ruling. This could end up in the Supreme Court, which in recent decisions has had a tendency to validate, validate that is, state mask mandates, but not federal ones. Either way, and we've talked about this before, mask wearing has become a political football. Some elected officials enjoy putting alleged personal freedom ahead of the public good. Now they have their rationale. Far as I'm concerned, fine. Go maskless if you want. It's your health and well-being and not mine because I'm not sitting anywhere near you in public transportation. If you ride crowded subways or buses maskless, then start losing your sense of smell. Do not say that you were not warned. Just be aware. This isn't critical race theory or woke ideology or any of the other nonsense people use to stoke the right wing. This time, it's your life you're playing with. And speaking of right-wing nonsense, the right flank of the Republican Party has taken to demonizing the LGBTQ communities with some of the most absurd accusations ever. More on that in a flash. This is The Intersection. Wherever you are, stay tuned to The Intersection with Mark Riley. Welcome back to The Intersection. The Republican Party has declared war against whom? The LGBTQ community in the United States. This goes way beyond the so-called don't say gay bill in Florida, which limits what can be taught about sexual orientation and gender identity from kindergarten to third grade. Now Republicans are alleging that Democratic defenders of gay rights are trying to groom young people. Their proof? Well. They don't have any, like so many of the other wild accusations they've made in the past. It's all a cynical attempt to activate the GOP base ahead of the midterm elections and fill the campaign campaign coffers, that is, of GOP candidates. And, you know, when they say follow the money, think about it. Follow the money in this situation. It has no consequence for Republican candidates for office to demonize whole communities of people in the name of raising money. But wait a minute, sad to say, this kind of nonsense sometimes works. Well, 
one elected official was not having it. Michigan State Senator Mallory McMorrow called out a Republican colleague who accused her of wanting to sexually groom children. Her response on the Senate floor went viral and was viewed 12 million times in a single day. The woman who accused her did so in, guess what, a fundraising email. That's right, a fundraising email. Now, this conduct is beyond outrageous, as is the conduct of Florida's Neanderthal Governor Ron DeSantis in supporting the revocation of Disney's Business Improvement District because the company opposed the Don't Say Gay bill. That one has First Amendment implications, and I'm not going to go into them here, but the issues are much larger. The right has decided to target blacks who demand the nation's full history be told to school children, and LGBTQ people who demand children not be oppressed for being different. Believe it or not, there are some GOP strategists who understand this, and politically, they understand that this kind of Republican homophobia could have consequences. They can count up to 12 million. They know the parental rights rationale for this doesn't really hold water any better than their voter suppression tactics. I've said it before and I'll say it again here. All these attacks on the rights of marginalized and oppressed people are a pathetic attempt to hold on to power. They really can't win contests based on ideas so they fall back on their default position which is to demonize the other. The great Maya Angelou put it best, when people show you who they are, believe them in the first place. The people who craft these messages of hate have no place in public life, much less political office. They've made it tough to defeat them in the political arena, but they can, in fact, be beaten. Even Ron DeSantis, with his tortured dream of becoming the next Trump, is not invulnerable. However, beating these Philistines will take work. It will take coalition building, and I mean serious coalition building. And it will involve taking names and never ever forgetting. Up next, the strange case of the Solomon Islands and China. This is The Intersection. Join the conversation at Mark Riley Media on Facebook. Welcome back to The Intersection. I have to admit, I had no idea about the Solomon Islands, the people, where they were located, just until the other day. I now know the Solomon Islands consist of six major islands, and get this, over 900 smaller ones. The most famous is Guadalcanal, certainly familiar to anyone who has studied World War II. The Solomons have a population of about 660,000 people. I say this by way of definition, because the Solomons just did a security deal with China, and that deal has the world in an uproar. Although you may not see all that much about it, in media, believe me, the world is in an uproar about this, including the good old USA. The deal, according to published reports, was done in secret and has been in the works for a good long while. It's significant for a couple of reasons. 
It's China's first bilateral security arrangement with a country in the Pacific. Okay, but why, you may ask, did the deal raise alarms in New Zealand, Australia, and the U.S.? Well, the deal does allow, again, according to published reports, does allow the Chinese to send military and police personnel to the Solomons, which did experience an outbreak of political violence just last year. Yet both Beijing and the Solomon Islands governments say no military projects are planned. Still, the security agreement seems to have caught the big powers completely off guard. Now, there are a few lessons to be learned from this. First, despite all the internal trouble that the Solomon Islands has experienced, they consider themselves a sovereign nation, able to make their own decisions in their own interests. But they've become, like it or not, pawns in a much larger political game. The Solomons sit a mere 1,200 miles from Australia, and any Chinese military presence in the Solomons would leave them vulnerable. That's why you hear rumblings in Australia and New Zealand about the possibility of another Cuba. You see how that kind of goes back, and we'll get to that in a minute as well. Well, there appears to be little doubt that the West got caught napping on this one. The Chinese have been looking to expand their influence worldwide for quite a while. Witness their Belt and Road Initiative. I know I've talked about it before, but for those of you who don't know what it is, it's a Chinese global infrastructure strategy that involves 70 countries. Taken together, it all amounts to China's fervent desire to increase its power and prestige on the world stage. If they can do so at the expense of the West, so much the better. It has to be said that the Chinese are simply taking advantage of the patronizing, condescending attitudes Western countries have displayed towards small islands all over the world, including in the Caribbean, in the Pacific, and in fact, most of Africa. It will take nothing less than a complete reframing of Australia, New Zealand, and America's attitudes towards the Solomon Islands to blunt the entreaties of the Chinese. Because, you see, they are taking typical neo-colonial attitudes shaped over the many years and turning them against those who promote them. Certainly, the Belt and Road Initiative has not been a complete success. Some of those countries have chased, chafed that is, under the carrot and stick approach to development that the Chinese employ. And still, the Chinese press forward. That's right, they press forward. And I'm going to put this in a slightly larger context, if I may, for a moment. You see rebellion against colonial attitudes and neo-colonial attitudes in countries all over the world, in countries far away, for example, from the Solomon Islands. That's why there have been demonstrations and protests, not necessarily large ones, but still demonstrations and protests against what many countries consider to be colonialist and neo-colonialist attitudes on the part of larger former imperial powers. That's what the demonstrations were against William and Kate from the royal family and the, Dutch, uh, the Duke and Duchess of Wessex, who are in the process of visiting the Caribbean. 
there is a feeling that it's time that these countries, no matter how large or how small, are allowed to stand on their own. That's why Barbados decided to become a republic. There are other countries in the Caribbean considering doing likewise. And the Solomon Islands, in signing this deal with China, is saying the same thing that a lot of the countries in the Caribbean are saying. And they're saying essentially, look, we're tired of being under your thumb. We're tired of having to talk to you every time we look to do anything. Now, had the Solomons gone to the Australians or the New Zealanders and said, look, we're thinking about doing this deal with you, what do you think their reaction would be to the potential of doing a deal with the Chinese? They'd go just as berserk as they have gone. That's a fact. It's a simple fact. And it needs to be stated that the reframing of these attitudes, the reframing of, well, you're 1,200 miles from us, we don't want another Cuba, that has to change. Because until it does, it gives room for the Chinese to go in and work whatever magic they feel they can. I remember many, many years ago being at a political dinner up in the Bronx, the Bronx in New York City, and seeing, to my amazement, two full tables at this dinner were filled with Asian people who I later found out were Chinese. And I'm thinking to myself, what in the deuce are the Chinese doing sending this many people, or sending anybody for that matter, to a political dinner in the Bronx? And after a while, I started to understand. They are trying to, even back then, they were trying to expand their political influence. And sometimes it works, and sometimes it doesn't. It's not going to make politicians in the Bronx loyal to Beijing. That wasn't really the purpose. But where there are depressed communities, anywhere in the world, where the Chinese feel they can go in and say, hey, you know what? We've got a strategy for you that will bring you out of poverty. Remember something, and this is something people in America really don't understand. The Chinese have managed over the last decade, since the beginning of the 2000s, to have lifted 600 million people out of poverty. That's almost twice the population of the United States, 600 million people out of poverty. Now, their methods may not have been something that anybody in the West actually agrees with. I understand that. But when you go to countries that have their own poverty problems, their own political problems, and you say, you know what? We can do something to help you. People listen. And that's what's happening in the Solomon Islands. Despite the fact that those islands are far from U.S. shores, this entire situation bears close scrutiny on the part of the West. The next Chinese initiative and deal may come much closer to home. Thanks again for listening to this episode of The Intersection. The executive producer of the broadcast is Ms. Kim Jack Riley. Music is by Eric Lund. Until we meet again, please stay well. <laughs>